Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Hello and welcome to Bookworms. My name is Bex and oh my goodness, we got a lot of books to tell you about today. Uh, First of all, just a big hello to anybody who went to the Barnes Children's Literature Festival over the weekend. I was there, had the most amazing time. I spoke to Michael Morpurgo, Elle McNichol and Tom Holland not Spider-Man, he's a historian, and it was properly brilliant, so hello to anybody who managed to see any of the events at the Barnes Book Festival. Uh, Onto the show, we've got a lot of stuff for you on the way, including talking to Nazneen Patak. We have got BBC Sports Personality of the Year, Beth Mead, plus we've got a lot of goss from the Alligator's Mouth Award shortlist. So let's kickstart it, shall we, with that brilliant chat with BBC Sports Personality of the Year and Arsenal football player, Beth Mead. Hey, how you going? Hi, I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Um, I've been reading your book and I've never felt so positive about anything in my life. Oh my goodness, I feel like I could go on and take on the world. (laughs) Your book is called Raw. Can you tell us a little bit about it for people who maybe haven't managed to catch it yet? Yeah, um, I'm quite a positive person, so I'm happy that you think it's got a lot of positivity in there. Um, Obviously, it's called Raw and it's kind of to try and help the younger generations find out what sport they would most preferably like to do. Although I'm a footballer, I played a lot of different sports as a kid. I love playing sports and being around and invested in sport. So I think I just wanted people to understand a little bit of the process to either becoming a professional athlete or if you want to start out. And I think the main thing for starting out is just to have fun and, you know, figure out what what sport and what fit is best for you. Yeah, it's kind of like half autobiography and half like life advice, I guess, isn't it? You've kind of like mixed up a lot in there. And tell us, like, how did you get into football? Because you go through a lot of the sports in the book, don't you, that you kind of tried out? Yeah, yeah. So obviously it was in, I wanted to obviously people to understand my story a little bit and help maybe being more like the younger generation, if they feel like that, they can know it feels a bit normal, but obviously put like the activity element in it of, you know, try to help them figure out what's best for them. But yeah, I got into football when I was six. My mum took me to my first session. I love football instantly, but going through primary and secondary school, I did a lot of sports such as netball, hockey. I was pretty good at and went to like county level at it. I did a lot of athletics. I did cross country. I threw myself into them all. And obviously my one true love was football, but I also love playing other sports. I just, yeah, that was the one I kind of selected in the end. I loved when you have your reasoning for not wanting to do the sports. And it was like hockey because you had to wear a skirt. Was that right? And running, just a bit boring. Yeah. Yeah, running was the same, same. Hockey, I think I could turn up with a battered stick and they wanted me to wear a skirt and that wasn't for me right then. Netball, there wasn't enough contact or you had to stand still for the ball too long. So there was always like something that I was like, oh, it's not quite right for me. I need a bit more from it. Obviously, I mentioned about being a ballet dancer earlier, early stages and that really wasn't for me. It was more, there was too much standing still and not enough going on for me. So I used to often get in trouble in that one. Yeah, I've got to say, I did ballet as a kid as well and it was not my thing. I was like, nah, not happening. My mum tried, bless her. Yeah, likewise. She gave it a good go, but it never took for me. Um, And also in the book, you've got a little quiz of like, if you like kind of team sports or working in a pair. And that's quite cool as well to help people realise there are loads more sports out there than you realise, right? Yeah, and they come with different aspects. I think, um, you know, for myself, I'm quite outgoing. I'm a social butterfly. I love being 
in a team environment around different people. But, you know, I've got a hero in my book as Kelly Holmes and she was obviously very individualized and, you know, she concentrated on her and she was accountable for everything that she did. Whereas I have 10 other teammates on the pitch that, you know, you can't control and that's different. But I think it depends per se, per person, like what's best for them, what they prefer, what they get more of a feeling and that for. Oh, yeah. And tell us about these heroes that you've included in the book as well, because it's quite cool to read out other people as well. Yeah. So I've got a few heroes in the book. I've got my mum and dad. I've got Jordan Nobbs, who's one of my close friends and teammates. I've got Kim Little, who's an ultimate professional teammate now. Kelly Holmes. I've got Viviana Miedema, my partner and uh, teammate, who's just like world class striker. List goes on. <laughs> it's, no, it's really cool to see all these stories of different people, and and also, like I said, you do give advice as well. So there's advice on stuff like how to keep going if you're not doing as well as you wanted, if things haven't worked out for you. Like, what would your advice be to listeners who maybe aren't reaching the top team at school, or maybe want to do better in their sports? Do you know what people always go? What's the best advice you could give a young generation? Or uh, what would you say? And we've all got our own personal journeys. We all deal with things differently. I think that's okay and that's normal. And I think, you know, when I was younger, I got so upset about going to national team and I was homesick and I put pressure on myself and this, that and the other. Whereas one of the other girls who would go to the camp would, wouldn't bat an eyelid. She was there. She was fine. No problem. No. And that's okay. We're all different. I think my best advice would be we're all on our own journey. We're all on our own um you know how we how we work about things and um it's important for you to not get bogged down by other people you are your own individual person and that's okay and, and we all deal with things differently um i think my biggest one is having great support around you if you can get a great support network they can then help you whether it's emotionally if it's physically if it's a skill that you want to get better at i would say have fun doing it, but obviously get the right support and help that you feel that you need. And that's not always easy, but yeah, that would be my best advice in that situation. Get the good people around you. I, I did also read, I was right in reading that you turned down your dream job at one point. Oh, which one was that? <laughs> was it when when you was at Arsenal and you, you originally got it and you decided because you wanted to stay in the Northeast for a little bit longer? Yes, yeah, sorry. Yes, it was very much a gamble one for me. I think I won a little bit of loyalty to Sunderland who I played for beforehand we got promoted from the lower league to the top league and I a bit loyalty I was like I'm not just going to jump ship now when we've got into this top league and I also at the top level I'd not had chance to play there yet and I was like if I go to an Arsenal yes I can be full-time I can do this I can do that but I wanted to one stick by the team that I'd done so well with to get a bit more experience at that level. And yes, it was a risk in the sense of it, Sunderland just got promoted. There was no expectation on us. And I might not have done well that season and a season later, Arsenal might not have wanted me. I guess I backed myself a little bit and my team and we ended up finishing fourth in the league behind Arsenal, City and Chelsea, which is pretty impressive. And I finished top scorer that season. So yeah, Arsenal still wanted me this season later. And I think I would never, ever change that process now but it also could have gone very differently. Hey, look, I'm from the Northeast, so I appreciate anybody who sticks around in the Northeast for sure. I'm a home girl. Yeah, for sure. Me too. Uh, and also in the book, you've got some advice on how to keep going forward. You say, you know, if you're a bit worried about what happens next, you know, think you've, what you've done in the past and keep in the present and look to the future. Is that like good advice to live by as well? When I was struggling or I was out of my comfort zone or something, my mum always told me to take one step at a time. And 
I think for me that was it, it's basic as it sounded at the time. It was get up on the morning, make a cup of tea, have your breakfast. That's that's a tick. That's a goal done. Do you know what I mean? Like get in the car, you know, get your training, then tick. You've done that. Then the next thing, the next thing, and by the end of it, you're at the end of your day. And I think it was important for me to do that in the early stages because I was so overwhelmed by thinking about this, that, and the other that it worked really well for me. And it's so important, and I look back now, to just live in the present. Like, you just don't know what's around the corner, and it's so important to just be present in everything you do. It's all about those little steps, isn't it? Just making it into manageable chunks, I guess. Yeah, and then manageable becomes, you don't think about step by step, and then it then all becomes the normal. And before I let you go, at uh, the back of the book, the back of Raw, you've got a little, because there's lots of cartoons and pictures all the way through. And there's a really good bit of um, the three awards you've won that have meant the most to you. And I just wondered whether you could talk our listeners through uh, which three they are. So mine are obviously my Euros recently. <laughs> I mean, that was pretty... Do you know, I had two that I really struggled to pick with with my sport personality. Of course. Because, again, sport personality, which actually leads back to the book, is every sport. It's not just football. It's every sport. As historic as the award is, it was I was up against a curling player, a snooker player, a cricket player, a runner, and I was a footballer. I that for me in itself, like you were competing against a lot of different, you know, sports, and so that was an important one for me. Obviously, my Euros was incredible. Um, never ever recreate that summer again. The WSL title with Arsenal, that's the one. I could have write a million awards on there. If I could have had about 10 podiums, I'd have stuck them here, there and everywhere. I mean, what a lovely place to be in, right? What a dream. I mean, yeah, you can't complain if that's a bad decision you've got to think about. Yeah, the, the, I've had too many achievements. I've got too many podiums. Yeah, to... I mean, that sounds also very big-headed, so I can stop now. <laughs> no, um, it's such a great book. And it's really, like I say, it's really positive, really affirming. And I'm not the sportiest of people, but it did make me think, you know what, maybe I could... I just take up karate or something. It just, it just was, it just inspired me. I've got to say it. Do you know what? I appreciate that. I think it can be for anyone, even if it's something. I, I think I said it earlier. Like, if you want to do it for a week or two and then figure something else out, that's fine. But if you have fun doing it and you enjoy doing it, that's also fine. So, yeah, I'm happy that it kind of had that effect on you, and I hope it does that to a lot, lot more people. Oh, I'm sure everybody's going to love it. Uh, Beth Mead, thank you so much for telling us all about Raw. It is a brilliant book and it is out right now. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Beth. That is such an inspirational book. I loved it. Uh, next up, we have got my Fun Kids Book of the Month for June. I feel like there should be a fanfare there. Do, 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 do. There we go. That'll do. This is City of Stolen Magic. It's by Nazneen Ahmed Patak. And here's what she had to say about it. Dr. Nazneen Ahmed Patak, author of The City of of Stolen Magic. Welcome to Fun Kids. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Now, I uh, received a copy of your book in the post. First of all, it's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, what I shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but what what a beaut. It's a big historical adventure, basically. Starting with Chompette, tell us how we find our main character. Where do we find her? Well, we are in... Bengal in India in 1855 at the beginning of the story and we meet Chompa. She's living in a village in Bengal with her mother and they are both witches. So Chompa has a very powerful kind of magic and her mother's got a different kind of magic. Chompa's forbidden from using her magic because it's so powerful and she can't really control it. She decides being rather impatient and confident young lady that she's going to take masses into her own hands and she's going to prove to her um, that she can control her magic and she should be allowed to use it and then 
things go terribly wrong for her, unfortunately. <laughs> there is a disaster. And as a result, Chompa's mother is abducted by a group of sinister pale men. And Chompa doesn't know who they are, where they've come from. She has to find her mother. She has to find these men and why they've taken her. She discovers that magical people are being abducted and stolen for profit as part of the colonial project of the British ruling India. And she has to travel to London where people being taken to be sold in a museum. She's got to find her mother. She's got to get some friends to help her along the way. She travels there on a genie-powered ship (laughs) with a tree instead of sails. And she makes some friends, but she also discovers that the battle that she's got to win is not just to get her mother back, but to get justice. For all of the magic people and the people who've been taken away. Yeah. Of course. Um, So, what I mean, what a lovely little bit of the book you've given us there that is amazing I need to talk about Chompa such an incredible character strong and really you know has to take it upon herself to really save the day essentially Yes, she's bold, she is impatient she's always trying to take things into her own hands sometimes with not so great results (laughs) Um, but she's also clumsy and she's just but she's never really had any friends and one of the things that she has to learn on her journey is how to work with others how to listen how to um, let other people especially children of her own age into her world and get to know them so it's really interesting where she ends up at the end of the story and compared to where she begins. Because I think if I knew I was magic, I don't think I'd listen to a lot of people. <laughs> exactly. So you kind of get how she... I, I, why imagine having magic and then not being allowed to use it? I'd be curious. Yeah. I'd, I would... Cause and it, she really is. Cause, yeah, and she's, she's really good at it, right? She's yeah. really powerful, really strong. Yes. And it's immediate. Her magic makes things happen in the world immediately. And the magic that she's being made to learn by her mom is a very slow type of magic. It's intricate. You have to do lots of writing and you have to learn a language in order to do it. And and she's really not wanting to do any of that. <laughs> she's like, what's the point at the beginning of the story? Part of it is actually learning why her mother's actually trying to get her to learn all of this as well. Is there a particular bit of magic in the book that you love the most? Is there something that you would do yourself? There is an amazing section in the book that is Chomper goes into a printing shop, into uh, printers, and some protesters against magic have been looting and rioting and and they've destroyed everything in the printing shop and they've ripped up all the paper and Chompa sits down and she doesn't really know if it's going to work or not but she decides to try something and she tries to make a spell to bring back the pieces of paper together and kind of join them back together again and She's surrounded by these kind of clouds of paper that then kind of find the other pieces and kind of join together in the air. And I think it would be quite handy. It's almost like being able to do jigsaw puzzles with your eyes closed (laughs) or something Um, to be able to kind of sort through your drafts of your novel that you have accidentally maybe thrown away (laughs) and then bring them back together again in the way she does. Wishful thinking from you, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Uh, Now, also in the book, you know, she 
comes to England and she comes to Victorian London, which is a very different place from where she started. Did you have to research a lot about India and about Victorian Britain as well? Luckily, I am a historian. So in my day job, I do actually research Victorian London. I've been looking at the history of Victorian London for a long time. And that's the inspiration for the story, really. It came from learning more about the different communities who lived in London. And it was a very diverse place, actually, especially in East London, near the ports and where the sailors were coming in and out from all around the world. And so I almost knew more about Victorian London, especially since we have so much more written about it than I did about Victorian India. And it was that that was very difficult to piece together in some ways. There's an amazing set of photographs from the British Library, which are all about uh, Tucker in the 19th century. And I use those a lot to kind of at least try and visualise for myself the place that Jumper was exploring. And and then I had to fill in a lot of gaps with my own imagination, but that's the joy of writing. Of course. And I yeah. guess also it kind of touches on that kind of colonialism and that kind of stuff as well that we're not taught at school. I'm actually reading a book about it at the moment. And there's so many things that I didn't know. Yes, even in terms of the reasons in which we have the different communities living in England today, Mm, uh that is connected to colonialism. So my book has a foreword, just a very simple sentence by a writer, which is you, you were there. So we are here. We are here because you are there. And it's a very simple way of explaining that actually colonialism created some of those migration networks, those kinds of points on the map that people would come back and forth from. And that's why we have communities from all around the empire living in London and in other port cities in the 19th century. And they were the predecessors to the migrant communities that we still have everywhere in in the UK now. And I didn't know that history as a child. No. Um, I didn't even know that sailors from my heritage, I'm British Bangladeshi, that even though they lived in landlocked places, they used to work on the ships because of drought and famine. They used to come into London, South Shields, (laughs) Cardiff, Newcastle, all these different ports and they're coming back and forth. Some of them would jump ship. They would make their homes here and they were living, having families in these places 150 years before my parents arrived. Yeah, I didn't know any of this. It is incredible, isn't it? And and also, I mean, what your book does very deftly is you weave in the, the real life stories and the magic as well. Like, is it hard to kind of put real and magic together in one book? I don't think so, <laughs> because I kind of think that in different places, magic is real. Yeah, okay. And in different places, history is lived as well. So I think of history as lived stories of people, but just from a different time. And I know that in different times and places, magic has not just been made up, but actually a real force that we have to contend with in the world. So so I think it came together very nicely for me. What was a bit of more of a challenge was actually building a distinctive and unique magical system that would make sense in the story and that took quite a lot of time i can imagine it's such a beautiful book and such a wonderful story so i can't recommend it uh, enough but uh one thing before i let you go is we do a little quick fire round of questions here on fun kids if that's okay sure um just to get a feel for who you are as an author i guess yeah so first up is books or kindles oh um Books. Books. Okay. You, I mean, you could say Kindles well, if you want to do. Well, I, I say Kindles for reading in the dark when I'm trying to get my little daughter to sleep. Right. Books for um, 
relaxing with a cup of tea and biscuits. Yeah, just feel like the weight of a good book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, heroes or villains? Uh, villains. Villains. Film adaptation or TV adaptation? I would say TV adaptation because it gives it more space. Good answer. Uh, witches or warlocks? Witches. Yeah, I thought I, I put that yeah. in for you. I just che- just checking, yeah. just testing. Um, beginnings or endings? Endings. Okay. Uh, writing or reading? Reading, but to write. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I get that. Hogwarts or Narnia? Hogwarts. Hogwarts. Yeah, me too. Laptop or write by hand? Um, laptop, but usually beginnings are very beginnings are write by hand. Okay, little kind of yeah. scribbles here and there. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you write nine to five or whenever you fancy? Uh, whenever I can. <laughs> <laughs> Just fit it in around everything yes. else in your life. Fair enough. Uh, Paddington Bear or Winnie the Pooh? Paddington Bear. That was the quickest answer. All right. And finally, the last one is the big one. Salt and vinegar or cheese and onion? Cheese and onion. <gasps> no. Uh, none of us, my family, understand how anyone can like salt and vinegar. Really? Oh, that, that's where <laughs> we, we get g- it. <laughs> We're going to have to agree to disagree on this I'm one. I'm so. <laughs> <laughs> But I'll let you off because your book is so good, so Thank it's fine. You. Don't worry about it. Um, so brilliant stuff, Anna. We should say, I believe it's out at the end of this month. Is that right? Yes. 29th of June. Lovely. Uh, City of Stolen Magic will be out on the 29th. Look out for a beautiful book. Uh, Nazneen, thank you so much for telling us all about it. Thank you so much for having me. Big thank you to Nazneen. Now, on to the Alligator's Mouth shortlist. Now, this is a pretty big deal, this award. You may have heard uh, in the last episode of this podcast, we spoke to Paul Westmerland and George Ermos. They joined us because they were nominated, but there are lots of other nominees as well. So next up, we have got a voice note from Paula Bowles, illustrator for Alex Velasse Coyer's Marv and the Pool of Peril. Hi everyone, my name's Paula Bowles and I'm the illustrator of Marv and the Pool of Peril. It's written by Alex Velasse Coyer and published by the Oxford University Press. And I'm so excited because it's shortlisted for the Alligator's Mouth Award. I can't believe it. So I thought I'd tell you a little bit about the book and why I loved illustrating it. So it follows Marv and his friends as they go to a water park. And then a supervillain called Hydro shows up and takes over. And it's up to Marv to save the day. Now, the reason I loved illustrating this book is because it's so action-packed and it's full of twists and turns. I didn't really know what was going to come next. It was a bit like playing in my imagination. So I got to draw robot sharks, giant inflatable castles, amazing water flumes, jetpacks, rocket boots and water cannons. And I love that as well as it being action packed and exciting, it's also full of kindness, imagination and friendship. Now, if you love drawing too, keep doing it. Keep playing and drawing things that you love and copying pictures that you love too. I hope you enjoy the book as much as I enjoyed illustrating it. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Coming up now, we welcome Candy Gawley, who is chatting all about her and Carlos Ballesteros' new book, Mike Falls Up. Hi, I'm Candy Gawley, the author of Mike Falls Up. I am so lucky because Mike Falls Up is one of the shortlisted books for the Alligator's Mouth Book Prize. And reader, the other shortlisted books are just fabulous. I'm so proud to be one of them. I hope you go and read them all. 
My book, Mike Falls Up, is a portal story. What is a portal? It's a doorway. And a portal story is when a character walks through a portal into another world. It doesn't have to be a door. It can be a wardrobe, like in The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. Or a wall, like Harry Potter running into a wall to get to platform nine and three quarters. And Mike falls up. Mike lives in a place in the Philippines called the Chocolate Hills. That's because it's covered with hundreds of hills that look like scoops of chocolate. Then there's an earthquake. A crack opens in the ground and Mike's dog, Bow Wow, jumps in. So, of course, Mike jumps in too. He falls and he falls and he falls. And then he shoots out a fireplace on the other side of the world in London. Let me read you a tiny bit from Mike Falls Up. This is at the beginning of the story when Mike and Bow Wow, having nothing better to do, decide to walk to the top of the hill. Suddenly, the ground beneath Mike's flip-flops began to tremble. A crack appeared, zigzagging between his feet. Earthquake! he cried. The crack yawned wider, turning into a great hole. Then, as quickly as it had begun, the trembling stopped. Bow Wow, let's get out of here! But Bow Wow ran right up to the hole and jumped in. Mike hurried to the edge. Bow Wow, he cried. Bow Wow! He leaned in, and a whoosh of cold air ruffled his hair. It was dark inside. Bow Wow, Mike called. Are you all right? Thwack! Something blew onto his face. Mike peeled it off. It was a piece of paper. Written on it in black marker was, Birthday, come now, just fall up. Birthday? Whose birthday? Just fall up. How was it possible to fall up? Mike turned it over. It wasn't signed. Then he heard barking. Bow wow. He sounded a long way away, but at least he was all right. Mike stuffed the invite into his pocket and jumped into the hole. Another nominee is Kirsty Applebaum. Uh, she's providing a little intro and a reading from Princess Minna, the Enchanted Forest, illustrated by Sahar Hagu. Hi, I'm Kirsty Applebaum, author of The Enchanted Forest, which is part of the Princess Minna series. Princess Minna just loves sorting out all the problems in her kingdom. She lives in Castle Tall Towers with the king, the queen and a wizard called Raymond. And when all is well in the kingdom, lots of grey doves sweep and swoop around the towers, making soft cooing noises. And they make the whole castle smell like tutti frutti ice cream, which is really lovely. When all is not well in the kingdom, lots of seagulls fly up from the coast. They scare the doves away and they flip and flap around the towers, making horrible screechy squawky noises. They make the whole castle smell like old seaweed, which is not lovely at all. I'm going to read you a few pages from chapter one of The Enchanted Forest. One afternoon, Princess Minna was in her bedroom when she noticed a funny smell. She sniffed a big sniff. 
she knew that smell. She'd sniffed it before. Seaweed. Princess Minna looked out of her window. There were big seagulls screeching and squawking. The doves were nowhere to be seen. Oh dear, she thought. All is not well. All is not well at all. Princess Minna's room was right at the top of this tower here. She ran down and down and down and down and down and down until finally she reached the bottom. Oh, Minna, said the queen, pulling seagull feathers out of her crown. All is not well. Something dreadful has happened, said the king, wiping seagull poo from his velvet robes. We've just had a phone call from Lord and Lady Wellington Boot. It's their son's birthday, said Raymond magically. Yes, said the queen. He turns 10 years old today. Prince Wellington Boot's birthday? That didn't sound too bad, thought Princess Minna. Birthdays were usually quite nice. However, added the king, on the day he was born, a bad fairy put a curse upon him. She said that on his 10th birthday, he would prick his finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel and fall asleep, along with everyone else who happened to be near him at the time. Then thorny bushes would grow up around the palace and fearsome guards would appear. And if the prince wasn't awoken by sundown, he would never wake again. Gosh, thought Princess Minna. So, said the queen, Lord and Lady Wellington Boot swore that on the eve of their son's 10th birthday, they would remove all the spinning wheels from the palace. Then it would be impossible for the prince to prick his finger. However added the king. They completely forgot about it. They went out this morning to collect the birthday balloons and now they can't get home because fearsome gods have appeared and thorny bushes have grown up around the palace and the prince and his nanny and the cook and the gardener and the lady who came to deliver the raspberry ripple flavour birthday cake are all fast asleep and not answering their phones. Fearsome gods, thorny bushes, sleeping prince... Excellent, thought Princess Minna. It's a disaster, said the king. Please go and sort it out, Minna, straight away. Goodness me, no, said the queen. It's Raymond's turn to sort out the kingdom. Oh, said the king. In that case, please go and sort it out, Raymond, straight away. Raymond flicked through his very big book of highly magical spells. Unfortunately, he said, I don't have any spells that will lift a curse cast by a bad fairy. Not a single one. No matter, cried Princess Minna, already running for the door. I'll do it. Princess Minna loved sorting out the kingdom. Remember, called the king, you must reach the prince before sundown or he will never wake again. And then where will we be, called the queen. And that's the end of chapter one. So if you'd like to find out whether Princess Minna manages to wake up the sleeping prince in time, have a read of The Enchanted Forest. It's written by me, it's published by Nosy Crow, and it has gorgeous full colour illustrations all the way through by Saha Hagu. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Uh, finally, we've got a voice note from Elise Dolan, who authored and illustrated Rex Dinosaur in Disguise. Hello, my name is Ellie Dolan, and I am the author and illustrator of Rex Dinosaur in Disguise. Now, this book is all about a T-Rex, a dinosaur called Rex. 
Now, after a run-in with a pesky ice age, Rex ends up frozen in ice. And that's where he stays for millions of years. Finally, things start to heat up a bit and Rex defrosts. But he finds himself in the modern world, surrounded by humans like you and me. Now, for Rex, this is bad news. Because if the humans ever figured out there was a real-life T-Rex living amongst them, he would end up in a zoo or, worse, a museum. Lucky for Rex, though, he finds out he isn't the only unusual creature living in secret in the human world. He runs into Bigfoot, also known as a Yeti, also known as a Sasquatch, also known as the Abominable Snowman. And he has been living in the city for years and is excellent at appearing like a normal, boring human. And he introduces Rex to all of his other creature friends, like Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster, who works as a lifeguard, and Mr Dodo, the last remaining Dodo bird, who runs a very successful fast food franchise. Now, they teach Rex all about what you need to do to seem like a real-life human. Things like how to dress, how to use money, and most importantly, how to get a job. Now, after a while, people do start to get a little suspicious of Rex, because he doesn't seem like an entirely normal human, especially Bigfoot's downstairs neighbour, nine-year-old Sandra Shellman. She knows there's something fishy about her new neighbour, Mr Rex, and she is going to investigate. Now, the thing that I think makes Rex Dinosaur in Disguise quite special is that it's not just the words that tell the story. It's the pictures, too, that let you know what's going on in Rex's world. So it's only when you see them both together, the words and the pictures, that you get the full story. So I would love to read you a bit from the first chapter of Rex Dinosaur in Disguise. So I'm going to tell you what happens in the pictures as we go along. Read the story. So this is chapter one, King of the Dinosaurs. Millions of years ago, Rex was king of the dinosaurs. He could stalk through all the swamps he wanted and none of the stegosauruses could complain unless they fancied becoming a delicious brunch. He loved the volcanoes and the forests and the football-sized insects. For Rex, this was home. Then it got cold. Not just a bit chilly. Ice age cold. And it stayed cold for a long, long time. Millions of years, in fact. Finally, things started to heat up. As the ice began to crack, one big lump dropped into the sea. One big lump containing one big dinosaur. The iceberg slowly melted as Rex floated across miles of water until, at last, land came into view. But there were no volcanoes, no forests, and not a single massive insect. It was just scary. Everywhere he looked, there were predators. Now, in the pictures, we can see Rex being terrified of the human world. Uh, he gets growled at by a little dog. Arrgh. He's freaked out by watching all of the humans walking down the street eating their lunches. He's baffled by traffic lights. And he even tries giving the road a little lick, only to find out that it's kind of painful on the tongue. At first, there didn't seem to be anyone to ask for help. But then Rex spotted a couple of friendly faces. Other dinosaurs! And in the pictures, we can see what Rex has spotted. It's a poster for the Natural History Museum, featuring a couple of dinosaurs. So Rex hurried inside, ready to ask them what on earth was going on. 
only to discover that this new place wasn't safe for dinosaurs. Not at all. And what can he see? Well, in the pictures, we find out the Rex has wandered into the room full of dinosaur skeletons. What now? There was only one thing Rex could think to do. Hide. He curled up as small as he could, which wasn't really that small, then suddenly realised how exhausted he was. Before he knew it, Rex had fallen asleep. Little did he know, as he began to snore, the helper was close at hand. Because Rex wasn't the only one trying to keep a low profile at the museum. So that's a little bit from chapter one of Rex Dinosaur in Disguise. And I hope you're able to pick up a copy and keep on reading because things are about to get exciting. He's going to run into Bigfoot and it's all going to go down. So thank you very much for listening. And I hope you get to read Rex Dinosaur in Disguise. Bye bye. So a big congratulations to all of the authors nominated and, of course, a big thank you to them for sending us some voice notes as well. Lots of books there for you to check out and good luck to everybody. The winner will be announced on Thursday, the 6th of July. That's all the time I've got in today's show. A big thank you to Beth Mead and Nazneen Ahmed Patak. We'll have more books for you very soon on Fun Kids, so stick around and remember to make sure that you like, subscribe and follow the Fun Kids Bookworms podcast wherever it is you get your pods from. Bye! Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!